0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Tonight, God willing, we're going to finish... Uh our whole series on looking at the church ecclesiology is the fancy name for it but we've been looking at a couple aspects of the church not all the aspects of things that we could look at we haven't talked for example about church government um, and other issues uh, concerning uh, structure of the church but we have talked about spiritual gifts and we've also talked about uh, the the life of the church together Uh, the believers church believers baptism and the life that we're to have together And that culminates in our consideration uh, last time and then uh, tonight on church discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the key places that you should go to study this issue of church discipline. But before we get there, I want to read one of my absolutely favorite visions of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And it's in Revelation chapter 1. Just listen. You don't have to turn there, but just listen as I read. It says in Revelation 1-9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet was like a like bronze, glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. What a picture of Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory and in his power. And John sees him, perfect, holy, with eyes burning, with feet like glowing bronze, moving through seven lampstands and having in his hand seven stars. And as you go on in Revelation in chapter 2 and 3, as Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, writes to each of the seven churches, we understand that the vision is a, is a vision of the resurrected Christ moving through his church, or really through his churches, because he's ministering to these seven Uh, lampstands, and he's got his, his hand around seven stars, which represent, I believe, the pastors of those churches, and he's ministering to them, and he's moving through them, and he's assessing them, and he's critiquing them, and he's giving them words of encouragement, and he's giving them words of rebuke, and he's ministering to them. It's an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. Then at the end of the book, we have... Uh, A remarkable picture of the church. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then later it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone, listen to this, it shone with the glory of God. Isn't that incredible? That is the church perfected, shining with the glory of God, with the radiance of God, and its brilliance, it says, was like that of a very precious jewel. Now, what is the relationship between these visions? I think they're intimately related. I think we have Jesus with his purifying presence moving through the churches, and he's working with them, and he's ministering to them, and he's, he's warning them in some cases, and he's exhorting them in others. He's ministering. And what is the final outcome of all of that ministry? Well, there you see it in Revelation 21, a perfected church. And I think it's within uh, the context of that consideration that I want to complete our look at church discipline. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have Paul through the Holy Spirit ministering to a local church. And that local church had significant problems. They were very gifted. They had, it seemed, they lacked no spiritual gift, Paul said, Uh, and they had along with that many problems. They had problems of factions and division. They had problems of spiritual immaturity, what some have called carnality. They have problems of pride and arrogance. And here in this chapter, it seems, they have problems of gross immorality. And all of these things kind of seething together in the context of a local church. And there's Jesus ministering there to that local church with those burning eyes and those glowing feet and that head and hair white like wool. That is Jesus Christ ministering to his church. Now, why do I put it like that? Well, as one medieval theologian said, St. Anselm said to a debating partner, he said, you have not yet considered how grievous a thing is sin. And I think that's our problem in America today. I think that's the problem with the church. I think we got rid of church discipline because we don't consider sin to be grievous. We don't understand how it damages individuals. We don't understand how it damages families. We don't see the devastation that it does to somebody's walk with Christ. We underestimate it all the time. We play with it. We touch it. We we move around through it. We're surrounded by it all the time, and we just become hardened to it. We just don't think much about it. And so, little by little, the church got rid of church discipline. So much so that, for the most part, people don't even notice that it's gone. They're really actually kind of surprised that it's in there. And when you show them the Bible, it's not that they've been rebellious or rejecting. They just didn't even know it was there. It didn't enter their minds. Well, it is there. Because I think that there's a journey that the church has to travel. We've got to move together. We've got to move through sanctification until we get to that place where we are that, that beautiful, that pure, that holy, blameless church of God. Now, the Apostle Paul had a zeal for that, didn't he? He had a zeal for the holiness of the church. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, he's listing all of his sufferings. And in, at the end, middle of 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about his sufferings. He's talking about his persecutions and his shipwrecks and his beatings and all of the things that he'd endured for the gospel. But then he says this, very interestingly. He says, on top of it all, I faced daily pressure... Of my concern for the churches I'm worried about them I'm concerned about them and he says who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn about it there's such a zeal for the purity of the church and the Apostle Paul had that and he says at one point he said I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy I promised you like a pure virgin to one husband that is Christ And so he says, I've got to present you to your wedding day. And so he's working with them, and he is just devastated. He's grieved by the immorality that's in this church. And so he writes them uh, concerning it. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at it. It's not that long a chapter, but it's just got, I think, all of the key elements that we need to consider for church discipline. So many things are in here. And I think they dovetail very well with what we've already seen. Uh, in Matthew 18 let's look at it together first Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1 it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans a man has his father's wife and you are proud shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this even though I am not physically present I am with you in spirit And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread made without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, A drunkard or a swindler with such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks very plainly, I think, about the issue of church discipline. Now, let's understand how this fits in to the context of what we've been talking about concerning uh, the Baptist understanding of, of the church, which I think is right and biblical. Namely, that the church is to be comprised of believers as much as possible. That our goal with a local church is regenerate church membership. We're desiring to see that. And so believer baptism is a representation of that. We are seeking to have only those people uh, baptized to give a creditable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Creditable profession of faith. Well, that already implies that there's some flaw in the process. And do you know what the flaw is? It's people like me who can't read minds and hearts, right? Somebody comes and wants to join the church or be baptized, and I'm not able to peer into their soul and see what's really there, the way that Jesus could do. You know, when Nathaniel came and and he said, "Here is a true Israelite, in whom there's no guile." in whom there's no guile, I'm not a con artist, I'm not tricky, I'm, I'm a straight shooter, how do you know me? While you were sitting on the fig tree, I saw you. That's supernatural. Jesus can look at someone and say, there's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. It says in John chapter 2 that Jesus didn't need testimony about man because he knew what was in a man. But we don't, do we? (laughs) And so what we do is we sit down and we listen to people, we ask questions, we probe, we observe their life for a little while. And then at a certain point, it's reasonable to accept people into membership in the church. Uh, And then we go on and do church together. That's what happens. We live together in fellowship. We are Christian brothers and sisters together. And as we do that, uh, we start to do things together. And remember, I've told you that there's a there's a narrow gate, I think, at the opening to a Baptist church should be. The same narrow gate that Jesus established in Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, he said. There should be a narrow gate to enter a church. Okay? But then after that comes what? That that straight and narrow road, right? And so you're traveling this road. And how are you doing? <laughs> well, you, you know you have your good days and you have your bad days, right? You know, you, you, you wander in and out of obedience to God, and it's grievous. The book of James says we all stumble in many ways, don't we? And so we do struggle with sin, and thankfully, 1 John says, if any of us does fall into sin, we have an advocate. But we have more than just an advocate. We have more than just Christ in heaven in the heavenly realms pleading for us. We have brothers and sisters around us, don't we? And we're supposed to help each other. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters together. What love is it for a brother to see another brother in sin and do nothing about it? How is that loving? If you see sin properly, you see it as incredibly damaging to the brother. And so you desire to go and help. Now, when things are going well, normally, all things appear in good place, uh, we're going to be doing certain things for each other, aren't we? I gave you a list of words. We're going to teach. We're going to instruct. We're going to comfort. We're going to honor. We're going to encourage. We're going to praise. We're going to train and edify each other. Those are the tools we use when things are going well, things are going normally, right? Those are the things we do with each other. Along with that, of course, we pray for each other. When people begin to drift a little bit in the Christian life, we begin to see evidence that things are decaying spiritually. We become concerned. And we live together enough so that we can observe that. We are helping each other. We're not blocks. We're not sealed off from each other. We're not Cain saying, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are to watch over one another in brotherly love. We are to care for each other. And so a person begins to drift, and then what do we do? We correct We exhort, we admonish each other, right? Should. Oh, but that gets uncomfortable. You're getting personal now. Well, I think Christian brothers and sisters should be personal with each other. I really think that we should be helping each other. Why am I talking about this? Because these things needed to have gone on long before it got to this point. You see what I'm saying? Long before it got to this level, we can cut off so many of these discipline issues if we just be a church together. Now, suppose they don't listen to the correction. Suppose they don't listen to the exhortation. Then what? Well, then you roll up your sleeves, right? Matthew 18 talks about some of these things. You bring some others along, and then you sit down and say, we really really need to talk, because it's gotten serious now. Some issues are coming up, and then we see warning, we see reproving, and we see rebuking going on at that point. These are all verbs used in the New Testament for things we do with each other. Well, suppose that doesn't work. Suppose that doesn't work. Well, that's when we get to church discipline. On serious matters, when the person is dug in their heels and will not repent, then we face the issues here, as is this case in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, what's going on in this particular case study is that it seems that a a member of the church, somebody who's claiming to be a Christian, is having uh, marital relations with his father's wife. It's an incestuous situation it's grievous and he says it's so bad that even pagans know that it's immoral and that's living in corinth now that's saying something pagans don't even do this and then he goes on and says and you are proud what is what is it with your pride i don't understand now there's two different ways of understanding paul's statement and you are proud either you're proud in spite of what's going on i think that's more likely or they were proud because of what was going on. That's worse, isn't it? Now, let's take the second first. They are proud because of what's going on. Why could that ever make someone proud? Well, we're liberated from those sexual mores. We don't need to look after that. We can, be, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can have the Lord and we can have the old pagan lifestyle. Can you? No. But they, 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 it could be that they were boasting about that and that they had freedom and they were flaunting their freedom. That's possible. There have always been libertines, people who use the grace of God for a license, for immorality. But I don't think that's what was going on. I think instead they were proud in spite of the situation. They said, well, yeah, we've got that problem, that's true. But in general, we're a good church. In general, we've got the gifts. You know, we got a lot of people prophesying, a lot of people speaking in tongues. We got a lot of exciting things going on. Come down to First Baptist, Corinth, and see what's happening, okay? It's exciting to be in our church. Well, I heard you have a little... Yeah, that's true, but... All right, I think that's more what was going on. They were proud despite what was going on. But either way, they were proud. They should not have been proud. And why? Because we are a body together. When one part of the body is led into sin, the whole church should be mobilized. It's true, I have gangrene in my toe. But the rest of my body is fine. What? Would a doctor ever agree with your assessment of your health? You have what in your toe? It's just my toe. You're a body. It's going to get you. (laughs) It's coming after you. You need to deal with it. You can't just leave it. And so do you think the body takes it seriously when there's an infection? Oh, yes. The whole body gets mobilized. If you have an infection in one part of your body, your whole body is hot with fever. It's the whole body that responds, right? I'm just using a biological analogy. The point is we are a body. And so when there's a problem like this, the whole body has to be mobilized. What are you proud of? You should have nothing to be proud of. You should be ashamed. That's about what Paul's saying here mobilize move you should have been filled with grief now why is that important there's nothing delightful about church discipline immediately no discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful it is not comfortable it is not easy to do this kind of discipline it's grievous and there should be no sense of well I didn't do that self-righteousness or anything like that we should be grieving over two things the state of the individual and the state of the body as a whole Both of these things are in our mind. We're grieved over that you should be not just grieved, but filled with grief. I can't eat. I can't sleep because of what's going on. This is a grievous situation. And why? Because ultimately it may mean that this person is not a Christian. They're not a believer. And what does that mean? They're in danger of hell. They're in danger of condemnation before God on Judgment Day. That's how serious this is. And so you should have been filled with grief. And what else? What else? What does it say? Read it, look, and see with your eyes. You should have been filled with grief and not stopped there. Well, at least we felt filled with grief. That's not enough. Fill with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. There it is, it's plain on the page. Now you say, that seems harsh. Now I assume that all the other processes had gone on beforehand, that the person had failed to repent. I believe that in the end they did repent, Second Corinthians 1. They turned back from their sin and they were welcomed back into the fellowship. Paul clearly has a concern for the salvation of the individual. And so if they repent, they'll be welcomed back. But that wasn't going on. There was no repentance. There was only an entrenched commitment to sin. And so he said, you should have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. And then he says this in verse 3, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. That's what he means by when somebody is led into sin, I inwardly burn. He says, I am there, I'm with you, and this is concerning me because I also am part of the body. There is only one body after all, isn't that true? Now we've got this local church here to be concerned about, but it's a whole body. We should be grieving over all of the church of Christ when these kinds of things are going on. But Paul, especially because he had such a commitment to this church as a church planner and as an apostle of Christ. And he said, uh, I am not physically present, but I'm with you in spirit. And then he says a shocking thing. I have already passed judgment on the one who did this. And he doesn't just leave it there. He says at the end in verse 12, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? The implied answer is none. You have no business judging those outside the church. And then he says, are you not to judge those inside the church? Expecting the answer, yes. Now, wait a minute. Finally, we have a contradiction in the Bible, right? Because Jesus said what about judging? Do not judge or you will be judged. Now, how do you harmonize those? Well, Jesus and Paul had yet another disagreement. Is that how we do it? No, not at all. Because Paul was an apostle of who? Christ Jesus. That's impossible that they disagree. Rather, we need to understand what each, each passage is saying in its proper context. Jesus, when he said, do not judge or you'll be judged, he goes on to say, for in the same measure you judge others, you will be judged. In other words, the way you judge others, you'll be judged. So it comes back to you. And then he goes on to talk about the splinter in the eye. Remember? He says, if you see a splinter or a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, you're a hypocrite. He says, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If you read the whole flow of the passage in Matthew 7, the goal is proper eye care for one another, is it not? It's not like, forget it, you've got your problems, I've got my problems. The final outcome is, and then you will see clearly to take the speck from your brother's eye, right? Have you ever had anything in your eye? Have you ever asked for help to get something out of your eye? You know what I'm talking about? How sweet is it when it's finally removed? Do you realize that basically, more or less, your world stops when you have something in your eye? It doesn't matter if you're pitching in the seventh game of the World Series and seven billion people are watching you. You step off the mound and you work on it. You get the trainer and he comes out. It doesn't matter how long it takes. Because you can't continue until that thing's removed from your eye. What Jesus is saying is if you want to do the ministry of caring for other people's eyes, you need to be a certain kind of person. Now, there's different ways of understanding what that plank is. It could just be a wretchedly sinful life, and you've got all kinds of business to t- tend to yourself. Paul covers that in Galatians 6.1. He says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. The point is, you who are walking with the Lord, spirit-filled, with no unconfessed sin, you're not falling into these same patterns. And yet, even as you go, you're supposed to watch yourself, lest you yourself be tempted. And so the point is that it could mean that the plank out of the eye is someone who's spirit-filled, somebody who's mature, godly, they're walking with the Lord. could also have to do with non-hypocrisy. They're not going with self-righteousness. They're going with grief and with a tenderness. What kind of person do you want taking something out of your eye? You want someone who's gentle, right? Because you're going you're gonna to jump. The eye is just filled with nerve endings, isn't it? And you're just going to go, whoa, easy. <laughs> I know I want that thing out of my eye, but, you know, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. That's what it says in Galatians 6.1. Go and do it and watch yourself. So the point is that as we're going to do this work, we're going to go spirit-filled, we're going to go gently, but we're going to do it. And yet, if it doesn't work, Paul says judgment day comes. Now, not capital J, capital D, but a kind of judgment day in the life of a church. It's called church discipline. And he says, I have already passed judgment on this person, and you need to do it. And so he tells them how to do it. Look what he says. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, this is not done on the sly, folks. This is done in corporate assembly, right? We'll talk about why in a minute. But when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Stop there for a moment. So he tells you mechanistically how it's to be done. It's to be done at an assembly of the church. And why? Well, it says in the book of Deuteronomy over and over, after the penalties are discussed for certain sin, then it says, all Israel will hear and be afraid. There's an effect on the whole church when this thing is done, you see? And so it can't be just done quietly. Modern church discipline is the person just quietly leaves and goes to another Baptist church down the road, right? And no questions asked, no stories told, and we just move on, fresh start. You know what I'm talking about. That is not church discipline. Church discipline has a public aspect to it, so that the whole church is assembled and the whole church is taking part. Frankly, it is the whole church that does it. The whole church does it. We'll talk about that in a moment, but it's the whole church that gives its approval to the discipline being done. It is not pastor discipline. It is not elder discipline. It is not deacon discipline. It is church discipline. And therefore, the church must do it. And so he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, hand this man over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? He talks in another place about handing over Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, He's handed them over to be taught not to blaspheme, he said. Hand it over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, I think my best... Interpretation is they're expelled from the church. They're out in Satan's world. He is the God of this world, you know. And so basically they're no longer in fellowship, good fellowship with the church. They're no longer a church member. And basically the church is testifying its own belief, non, it's not inerrant, but its own belief that they are not regenerate. That's what the church is saying. And so they're ba- back out in the world. Treat them as you would, Jesus said, a pagan or a tax collector, an unregenerate person. They're back out in the world. So I think that's what it means when it says hand this man over to Satan. Now, what is the goal? Well, there's two goals. He deals with the first one here in verse 5. Look at it. Hand this man over to Satan. Why, Paul? So that the sinful nature may be destroyed, or the flesh destroyed, and his spirit saved in the day of the Lord. What is going on there? Well, just boil it down to this. There is a concern here for the individual sinner. Is there not? The desire is that they would come to their senses... That they would wake up. That they would say, what is happening to me? I'm having marital relations with my, my stepmother, I think is what was going on. What am I doing? What am I doing? And they wake up. I think that's the point. And there's a concern for the individual. Now, is it effective? Sometimes it is. Look at 2 Corinthians. Just put your finger here. We're going back. but 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 5, <clears> 2 <throat> Corinthians 2, 5, very, very important. I believe, uh, we don't know this for sure, but I believe this is the final chapter of the story of what happened with this man. Now, we don't know that for sure, but I think there's a good indication uh, that that's what's going on. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me, as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely, Now look at verse 6. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Do you see that? What does that tell you about the mechanism of church discipline? How does it happen? The church basically votes on it. You see that. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority of the church is sufficient for him. That's how the church acts. That's why it's not pastor discipline. It's done by the church. So the church does it. It's enough for him. What do you mean it's sufficient for him? Now instead, verse 7, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. Just stop there. Basically, it seems like it worked in this case for this individual. They repented. They came back. They were crying. They were broken. They wanted restoration. They were grieved. They repented. And Jesus said, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men by the blood of Christ. Forgiveness is available even for the most grievous of sins if they repent. And so that's what happens. But we see the mechanism. Now that is the first concern of church discipline that's listed here. Concern for the sinning individual. But that's not the only concern. It is so important you understand that there are two concerns and not just one. What is the second concern? What is Paul also concerned about? Well, he's concerned about the corporate church as a whole. And so, therefore, if, even if, sadly, grievously, the individual sinner never does repent, still church discipline was good and had a good effect. Why? Because it protected the corporate body from corruption. And he goes into that in the next paragraph. Look what he says. This is back in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? What is he saying? He's saying a little bit of this stuff, sin, wickedness, he tells us later that it's malice and wickedness, a little bit of this wickedness corrupts the whole church. Now, recently talking to some people, I said, well, what therefore does a lot of yeast do? Wow. That's That's tough. It's tough when a body is filled with infection all over to fight it off. It's very, very tough. Why? First of all, the church discipline is done by who? We just learned this a second ago. Who does it? The majority. Will the majority do the work then? No. So it's a downward spiral. Do you see how it works? It's so tough. It's almost a miracle to get it back up out of that spiral and get back to what God intended. But that's what it takes. Paul is concerned not just for the individual. We're so individualistic. He's concerned about the health of the body. He's concerned about the group. And he says a little leaven, a little yeast, you know, works through the whole batch of dough. And then he gets into this discussion here. In verse 7, he tells him the whole picture here is that Jewish ritual of getting rid of yeast around the time of the Passover. Now, yeast is that chemical that makes bread rise. And so all you needed to do, if you were a bread maker, was take a little piece of the leavened dough and set it off to the side for your next batch. And it would have the yeast uh, in it. And it would be sufficient for the next batch. You'd make make the next batch, let it rise, and then take another piece. Well, that shouldn't go on forever, all right? (laughs) There comes a point where maybe bacteria and other things start to, you know. So the Jews, once a year, got rid of all the yeast out of the house, and they started over started completely over with fresh yeast. And the time of that was Passover. It was a a picture of cleansing, complete cleansing. But what's so vital, it's so vital to see this. You look at verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast. Why, Paul? Why should we get rid of wickedness? That you may be a new batch without yeast. Now, the next words were like a bomb to me. I had never noticed them. What does he say next? As you really are. Those may be the strongest words to support regenerate church membership I found in the entire Bible. Maybe an overstatement, but what is he saying? You are a batch without yeast. That's the way God sees you. So be in practice what you are truly spiritually. Do you see how it works? Be what you are. Is that not the way that God always teaches sanctification in the New Testament? You are holy, therefore be holy. You are a holy nation, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. He says, therefore be holy because I'm holy. Do You see how it works. He teaches you what you are and then tells you to live up to it. Here he's doing it corporately. He says, you are, in fact, a batch without yeast. Act like it. Now how does this church act like it? Church discipline. Get rid of the sinner. He may not be part of you. He may have looked like he was part of you, but he may not actually be part of you. He knew all along, God did. God knew all along that he wasn't really part. Now, in the end, he repented, so the point is he got captured into sin and he masqueraded raided as a sinner. But we've got to get rid of that masquerade. We can't do that anymore. So, therefore, what are the two concerns for church discipline? Number one, the restoration of the individual, that he might come to repentance, that she might come to repentance, number one. But number two also, the purity of the body. And from that comes all kinds of things, like the reputation of the church in the world. Does that matter? Does it matter whether the church has a good reputation in the world? Oh, of course it does. God has put his name on us, and we must not sully that name with how we live. And so. Very cl- clear that his motivations are twofold, not just concern for the individual. And then he finishes up in verse 9, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not to associate with them. Don't eat with them, he says. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, the greedy swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. You've got to keep, you've got to hold on your job. You've got to talk to them. You've got to buy groceries from them. You've got to, you know, there's no getting away from that. And hopefully you'll be witnessing to them as you go. I'm not talking about that, but it's a different matter when they claim to be Christian and live like this. Now, that's a different matter. But now I am writing you, verse eleven, that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or swindler, with such a man do not even eat. And then he concludes this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? He says in another place, don't you know that we'll judge angels? You're competent to judge. That's why you don't need lawsuits. That's why you're commanded not to go before pagans to resolve issues. You have enough wisdom and power within the church to resolve these things. It's a shame and a scandal to the church to have a lawsuit. So what he's saying is you, have, you are competent to handle something like this. Judge those inside the church. God will take care of those outside. You take care of those inside. And then he says, finally, very plainly, expel the wicked man from among you. Now, my question is, is there anything difficult about this passage, difficult to understand? I'm not asking, is it hard to live out? Of course it's hard. No discipline is pleasant. Of course it's grievous and difficult. But is this a complex passage that's really difficult and there could be many different interpretations? I don't really think so. I think there are difficult passages in the Bible. I just don't think this is one of them. The question is, then, why don't we do it? Well, that is a big issue, isn't it? It's got to do with just our whole nation and just the way that leaven does work through lumps and how how long it's gone. But the word never changes, does it? Isn't that beautiful? It's still standing here telling us what to do. We have a responsibility, don't we? We have a responsibility, first of all, to live together as brothers and sisters so that we know each other well enough that we don't even get to this point. We have a responsibility to teach, admonish, encourage, exhort, love each other, pray for each other, set a good example for each other. We have a a responsibility to be a church together. And then after that, we have a responsibility if we see somebody drifting and there's big stuff going on and they just won't repent, we have a responsibility to expel them. It's not an option. It's what God is commanding us to do. And there's a chain of command and we have broken that link. It's time to reestablish that link and do what God's commanded us to do. Now, there are other verses that teach these things, but these are the most significant ones. You can look them up later if you'd like. I'd mention Galatians 6.1, talking about that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 1 Timothy 1 talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, as I mentioned earlier, Paul had handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Uh, 1 Timothy 5 talks about sin in an elder, a pastor like me or other elders. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder, it says, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But if an accusation comes from two or three witnesses, that elder must repent publicly because of his position. He's got to stand up. He's got to acknowledge what he did was wrong. Very, very important. It goes for elders as well. And then uh, for those that are creating strife and controversy and conflict in the church all the time, Titus 3 deals with that. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So there's many passages that talk about this. Now, when we do church discipline, what are we saying? Well, basically, in effect, the church is saying we want to be holy. We want to be that Revelation 21 bride of Christ. Jesus is in us by the power of the Spirit moving through us, purifying the church. Okay, what are we saying to that individual? We're saying we as a church who know you, who have been praying for you, who are concerned about you, we believe, as best as we can know, we believe that you are not regenerate. Do you hear that that's what the church is saying? We think that you're not born again. That's why we're putting you out of our fellowship. We believe that you're not born again. Now, if you are a person receiving that kind of word from a whole church, what should you do? What do you think you should do? Repent. Take it seriously. Stop. Listen. Be the wise man in the book of Proverbs. Not the fool who bridles at a rebuke. But somebody says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is there anything more important in my life than my soul? I I need to look again at what's happening here. Repent and come back. And then if he comes back, if she comes back, what should the church do? Welcome. Forgive. Accept. That's all. So that's the teaching. Now, what are the areas of church discipline? Three. Fidelity of doctrine, purity of life, unity of fellowship. Those are the three that people in the past have looked at. Fidelity of doctrine means that the person has become unfaithful in their teaching or in their beliefs, and they're spreading false doctrine within the church. Impurity of life, we dealt with here in this passage. Unity of fellowship is in that Titus passage where there's a divisive person who's stirring up controversy in the church all the time. Those are the issues that the church needs to look after. God has made his word clear to us, and I think it's important for us to take this passage, meditate on it, think about it, compare it to the life that we're living here at First Baptist Durham, pray through it, and ask God what he would have us to do. It's something that I've been praying for. I want our church to be faithful and to do it in the right way. It's very easy to do it in the wrong way. All I have to do is read the Scarlet Letter or uh, the History of the Spanish Inquisition, and you'll realize how bad it can get. But that doesn't remove what the Scripture says here, and uh, we need to be faithful.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,